Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. You you need one person per um, thousand acres to to harvest wheat. But in the case of strawberries, you need about one person per acre. People are looking at the guest worker program as the solution. And I tell them this is a short-term solution for what is a long-term problem. Robots have long since made the transition from science fiction to a reality of our everyday life. Few of us, however, are familiar with the quiet revolution that has taken place in agriculture, the forces that require that revolution, and where it is taking us. The stars have kind of aligned. We, we've got this tremendous need right now, and then the technology is, is coming together at the right time. We're going we're gonna to save the industry, I believe, and, and keep uh, berries and other fruits uh, affordable and available for U.S. consumers. In all the previous work of the past 20 years, working on grape powdery mildew resistance around the world, uh, in one year we doubled the number of resistance genes that are known. In this, the first of two episodes on robotics, We'll take an in-depth look at why there is such an emphasis on applied robotics in so many areas of agriculture. We're going to start with the seemingly simple act of picking a strawberry. And from there, we'll learn how robotics can be paired with high-resolution optics and artificial intelligence to drastically accelerate the discovery of disease-resistance genes. Hi, I'm Lance Cadle Davidson. I'm a grapevine pathologist with the USDA Agricultural Research Service. Hi, I'm Gary Wisnatsky, owner and head pixie of Wish Farms. What is Wish Farm, and and where are you located? Yeah, Wish Farms were a year-round uh, grower and marketer of all four major berries. We're based in Plant City, Florida, right on Interstate 4, um, right between Tampa and Orlando. And what are the four major berries? Uh, Currently, the four major berries are strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, and blackberries. But we're actually getting ready to add a fifth one. Can you tell us, or is that a national secret? It's a little bit of a secret right now, but I'll look okay. it out of the bag. <laughs> uh, the, the fifth berry is actually going to be the pine berry. Uh, it's a white strawberry that has hints of pineapple flavor, and it has like a little pink blush to it when it's when it's ripe. Uh, Dr. Vance Whitaker, the plant breeder with the University of Florida, just released his first white strawberry cultivar, also known as a pine berry, with that little pineapple taste. And it's it's gonna be awesome. It's um we had some little small pilots last year and got really great acceptance in the marketplace. And I think it's gonna be a, a major thing for the growers in the state of Florida. I've watched strawberry harvest and I've scrupulously kept away from being conscripted into the process because it looks like hard work to me. 
How are how are strawberries harvested now? It is hard work. Try picking a white strawberry and figuring out when it's ripe. <laughs> um, yeah, so currently all berries are being harvested by, by people. Um, it's the thing that a lot of people don't understand uh, is strawberries don't ripen all at once. They ripen over the course of, in case in Florida here, it's a five to five months or more season. So every third to fourth day, you have to go through the field and, and pick off the berries that are at the right stage of ripeness and leave the green ones. And, and it's, you know, if you don't get them at the right time, you, you can lose the entire crop sometimes just because of a disease can take over if you let berries get overripe on the plant. And who does this work? The current folks that are doing the work are predominantly right now, uh, H-2A guest workers. And we're bringing them in on visas. We're having to transport them, house them, and pay them a higher than what the national minimum wage is. It's an adverse effect wage we have to pay. And that's just the minimum. Uh, Folks are making, uh, many are making in excess of $20 an hour. Our California farms are people making between $30 and $40 an hour during peak harvest. So the money is not bad for um, what you would, most people consider unskilled labor. However, to strawberry growers, it is a skill. I mean, in order to be able to make uh, a good living at it, you have to be fast, you have to be accurate, you have to be able to stay in a field all day and uh, stooped over picking strawberries. It is really hard work and there is a skill to it. It's not exactly unskilled labor. But this isn't a this isn't a case that fits the stereotype of someone stealing a job from a hardworking American. They're they don't want to do this work, and somebody is willing to do it. No, and it's it's um, it's true. I mean, even back during the um, the Great Recession, we had uh, people that would come out looking for work, and they would do it for a couple hours. If they made it to the second day, they were a, really an anomaly. You didn't see very many people that could make it past one day uh, that were not used to doing the work. So, yeah, no, the average American were definitely not stealing jobs, and. The thing that's also, I think, of note is if you, I've been around the world and you know at other places that grow strawberries, and any country that is um, first world, they all have labor that's coming from somewhere else. I know in in England right now and in, in Great Britain, there's a lot of problems with labor. Uh, they had a program picked for Britain, <laughs> and that didn't work out so well with with Brexit. They they were having uh, issues with getting in people from Eastern Europe that were traditionally doing the picking. And in Australia, they have people that are, they call them backpackers there versus instead of migrant labor, but they're people that just follow the crop around. But mostly it's people coming from somewhere else. It's not um, the, the, the domestic people in the countries that are producing the berries that are picking them. So we're kind of getting at the the subject of today's podcast the the long way around and you had mentioned that the workforce is first generation immigrants but there's something about the demographics and the social aspects of this workforce that goes beyond the problems that we face today those problems are manageable but the future doesn't look so bright so can you tell me a little bit about that what's going on 
I started noticing back in the early 2000s, there were less and less people showing up at the farm applying for work. Um, and throughout the early 2000, late 2000s, it became quite evident that something was going on, that you know, there was just less people coming to do the job. And when it, I realized what it was, it was um, a demographic issue. Uh, you look back at the population in Mexico and the fertility rate there, that's where all the people were coming from to, to do farm work. But back in the 1960s, the fertility rate there was 6.7. The average woman was having 6.7 children, uh, big families, and they were uh, plenty of people looking for work and they were coming across the border because there wasn't work in their home country. Uh, but then I looked at by 1995, that fertility rate had dropped uh, below three. And now today it's almost at two. It's uh, just barely um, sustainable for their population, which, uh, so if you looked at back in the early 2000s, we were seeing the shrinking workforce and we're continuing to see it today. And that's why we're so heavily dependent on a guest worker program. That guest worker program was never designed to be a only means of getting workers. It was a means of last resort when uh, growers didn't have the, uh, the, the labor and uh, available, but today it's it's our only way to get the crop picked. And here's the thing: so where we're at today, the fertility rate in Mexico 20 years before this, back in 2000, was still you know above that sustainable level, but it's been continuing to drop. So if you kind of look at that trend of where it was and what our workforce was you can see why the, the workforce was dropping. But the next 20 years is going to be even more critical in, in my mind because people are looking at the guest worker program as the solution. And I tell them this is a short-term solution for what is a long-term problem because in the next few years, Mexico will soon become a net importer of labor. Uh, people will not be leaving Mexico to look for work. There's going to be work there. Farms in Mexico are going to be short labor. There's going this. The bidding is going to keep going up. Currently, our uh, labor costs have been skyrocketing, and the cost of getting berries harvested has been going up. And just, I'd say, in the last three or four years, our uh, California is a good case in point. I mean, it used to be uh, like a maybe a nine dollar a box break even. It's already up to twelve dollars a box break even, and the the pricing has been going up, but it's not going to keep up. It hasn't been keeping up with the the cost of the inputs there. So the, the thing that is to me is kind of a little bit scary for the American consumers is the affordability and availability of fresh fruits and vegetables. The way that the costs are, are rising, um, you know, growers are either going to have to get a lot more money for their products or they're going to go out of business. And, you know, it's just going to become a supply and demand thing. Uh, the industry is going to shrink and the um, availability to consumers will not be there in the future unless we solve this problem. And the problem's even more complicated than just the demographics might indicate, because those 
people who are being added to the workforce aren't necessarily interested in picking strawberries. If they're going to college to receive advanced education, their career goals probably don't include picking strawberries. That is true. Yeah, there folks don't raise their kids to be strawberry pickers. <laughs> you know, it, you know the, the first generation people that are coming here to this country that are you know, that are still doing the work in the fields, um, they all have a, a vision for their kids to you know go on to do much greater things and to get an education and to you know go into other types of jobs that aren't as taxing. So it's it's not. That's why I say first generation people are doing the work is because the next generation uh, don't want to do it. And, and quite frankly, they, they shouldn't. That's why people come to this country for opportunities. And they the immigrants are always the ones that are willing to do the hard jobs that nobody else wants to do. That's been the history of our country. Which finally brings us around to the subject of robotic harvesting. That's my favorite subject. <laughs> so, I've, I've seen this harvester in action. And uh, unfortunately, this is not a visual medium. So could you describe it for us? So it's a pretty large vehicle. It's about 30,000 pounds, I believe, the whole vehicle. And what it is, is it carries a, uh, a swarm of robots underneath it. Uh, it, it the machine spans four strawberry beds, and there's a set of robots on each bed. Uh, there's two robots on each line of plants. There's two lines of plants on a bed. So you have four robots on each of the four beds. So there's a total of 16 robots underneath the machine. Um, and they, using vision technology, they're, they're searching for the right berries. And they, or they go in a circular motion around the plant, the robot. Uh, it's the, it grabs the leaves and holds them upright so it can expose the ripe berries that are laying on the plastic. And then there's a picking wheel. And this is uh, one of the unique things about our technology that we our first patent actually was on is this picking wheel. I call it the Pitzer wheel. I named it after uh, the gentleman that invented it, Bob Pitzer, who is the co-founder of this company, Harvest Crew Robotics. Uh, it's really ingenious because what it does is it uh, utilizes conservation of, of motion. So rather than having a multi-access robotic arm that picks a berry and then it has to move it someplace, this picking wheel is able to pick, pick, pick very rapidly because each time it picks a berry, uh, the, the claw picks it, the wheel spins, and then a, another claw is there ready to pick the next berry. So as the wheel can go around the plant in about eight seconds currently, we can pick an entire plant if it has maybe three or four berries on it. So there's not much time wasted as it spins around the plant. wasn't always so in the in the level of development it's a fairly sophisticated and efficient machine at this point but i'm just wondering that there's a lot of parallels between this and uh and spacex i'm just wondering how many rockets did uh elon <laughs> musk blow up before they actually had a successful launch uh, compared to the number of iterations of this this robotic harvester 
I like to use that analogy a lot, actually. I've, I've used it in presentations. I mean, people look at the SpaceX um, Falcon Heavy rockets coming down and synchronously landing on a uh, pad after um, they've, they've launched the rocket into space, the capsule into space. And, um, you know, you see that image, but people don't remember all the images of the rockets blowing up in midair and <laughs> having all these terrible disasters and uh crashing into the ocean and everything else. So, yeah, th this is an iterative process. And I've ex tried to tell people that you never know, you know, when you go out to the field with the, with the harvester in the first several years, you know, what was going to happen. We didn't blow any up, fortunately, but, you, you know, you never know if it's going to work or not that day. Uh, we've fortunately gotten quite a bit past that now. We've, um, we've, Got a prototype this year that we believe is going to be the precursor of the commercial machines that are going to be beginning to be built next year. And we're really excited for this coming season here in Florida because I believe this is going to be the, uh, the start of what is going to be this robotic revolution. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. The general public might be accustomed to seeing industrial robots, uh, perhaps from uh, video footage from uh, an assembly plant for automobiles. And thinking about that as the state of the art, it would seem that an industrial robot that's welding together a car body has a pretty simple job compared to picking a strawberry in by the ton. Exactly. Yeah, the machines that we're um, using and they, there's got to be some level of intelligence i mean they, they've got to be able to identify the plant and, and see the berries and tell when a berry is ripe or not ripe because a strawberry you have to pick it at that right stage of of ripeness because a strawberry some people don't know this it doesn't ripen after it's been picked so you can't pick it with a too much green on it uh you want to be able to sort out any overripes but like i said earlier in the in the show you know you've got to go through there every three or four days just to pluck off the berries that are at just the right stage so and then there's the whole carriage part of it the uh, the strawberry doesn't come to the robot the robot has to go to the strawberry in a field yes and navigate and be able to identify and and so we've we're recording the gps location in the field of every plant so we're re-accessing that center of that plant where that hole was punched that the berry was planted in so that it gets recorded when we first lay the field out and and punch the holes that we put the plants in and that's it in and here in Florida, every October is when we is our month for planting. So all those plants go in the ground, but we're recording millions of uh, plant locations. And so when the, the machine comes back through, it's able to, um, you know, very very uh, precise accuracy access that exact center of the plant again. So that's that's a kind of a cool uh, feature of the machine. And this isn't just a, a challenge for 
uh, berry crops. This cuts across a broad range of specialty crops that are presently all harvested by uh, by humans. Yes, it, it's gonna. It's a big market for agricultural robotics. It's. I mean, it's tens of billions of dollars uh, that are being spent on harvesting crops. Strawberries alone is. A, a, there's currently about. Um, Things that one and a half billion dollars a year being spent on labor to um, harvest strawberries. So it's um, that is that number is continuing to rise too. So there, there's a it's an opportunity. I mean, there's it's interesting how the stars have kind of aligned. We we've got this tremendous need right now uh, to to figure out ways to harvest berries or or any crop for that matter that that requires a lot of labor so the need is there but the technology has is it has advanced and has come to the point now where we can do things that we couldn't have done even 10 years ago or even in 2013 when we started and we're beginning to imagine how we were going to do this the, the the technology wasn't there yet the the processing speeds i mean we're taking uh, hundreds of pictures a second of of strawberry plants and the technology to process those images wasn't there when we started doing this even so it's it's pretty amazing how quickly um things have advanced but so that the need is there and then the technology is, is coming together at the right time that this is being made possible Lance, you work on a project called Vitus Gen 2. What, what's Vitus Gen 2 about? Uh, Vitus Gen 2 is a grapevine breeding program working with public and private breeders across the U.S. and around the world to help develop uh, new varieties of grapes, whether it's table grapes, raisins, wine grapes, juice grapes, that have disease resistance and specifically resistance to powdery mildew, which is a problem everywhere grapes are grown. It's my favorite disease, certainly, and it's one of the most destructive diseases of grapevines worldwide. The breeding of resistance, of resistant cultivars, I've heard it said that it's a numbers game. How does that relate to the work you're doing? There's been very little grape genetic improvement since the grapevine was domesticated thousands of years ago. Um, almost all the varieties, 6,000 Vitus vinifera varieties, are highly susceptible to powdery mildew and require grape growers to spray them about 10 to 15 times a year, regardless where in the world they are. Um, so recently, grape breeders around the world have started looking to wild grapes with naturally evolved disease resistance to start to integrate those genes into cultivated grapevine to combine the uh, strong resistance, natural resistance to powdery mildew, along with excellent fruit quality that we, we know in the, in the varieties we know and love. So in a quest for new sources of resistance, when Vitusgen started, uh, I guess about eight years ago, we were searching for signs of resistance in collections provided by grapevine breeders all over North America, but it was done manually. Can you describe what that process was? Yeah, so 
We would start with the germplasm repositories, the, the wild natural collections that uh, the USDA maintains and distributes worldwide. And we, we surveyed those for disease resistance genes and worked with breeders to start to cross hybridize those with their existing breeding programs and develop what we call mapping families. So these are families that might have 100 individuals in them, 300 individuals. They're all full siblings, right? So they're related to each other. They have the same parents, the same mom, the same dad. And they segregate um, half of them maybe having disease resistance and half of them being highly susceptible. They also segregate for traits like uh, fruit quality. You know, some of them taste awfully nasty and are disease resistant. Um, we want the ones that combine disease resistance with delicious flavors and aromas. So each of these physical characteristics could be called some, uh, a phenotype would be the typical name, the technical name for it. That's right. We use this technical jargon. We talk about phenotypes. Uh, phenotypes are the traits of the vine. And the process of searching for new and valuable phenotypes is phenotyping. That's right. So now we've brought everyone up to speed on the terms we're going to be throwing around. Let's get started on describing the work. Yeah, so we have this uh, biparental family. Let's say it's 300 individual vines growing in a vineyard. And we need to know uh, which of these vines is resistant and which is susceptible. The traditional way that a grape breeder would do this is just to allow Mother Nature to do its work. Allow the natural inoculum, which is not evenly distributed in a vineyard, um, to just rain down on the vines. And then at the end of the season, we take ratings of how much disease we see on each of the vines. And that represents the vine's phenotype. The challenge with that method is that Mother Nature is not uniform. It's not a controlled experiment. And we found that year to year, we had highly variable and often unreproducible results. And we had a really hard time identifying the DNA markers that were associated with the disease resistance ob observed after natural infections. So the first iteration of the VitusGen project then sought to take some of that variance out of the evaluation process by, um, in, in a controlled fashion, inoculating the candidate varieties and, and examining their response to the powdery mildew pathogen. That's right. So we would, in the very beginning, receive leaves from a given grape breeder, maybe from all 300 vines in their mapping family. And we would process those by hand. And we came up with a method where we could use one centimeter leaf discs as a sample for um, that grapevine. And we replicate those leaf discs. So maybe each of the 300 vines has eight replicate leaf discs. And we're able to put about 300 leaf discs on a single tray. Uh, this is like a baking sheet with auger in the bottom to keep the leaf, leaf discs alive. We're able to inoculate it with one controlled genotype of the pathogen and provide an almost completely uniform environment where we're evaluating uh, each of the siblings to compare apples to apples how resistant or susceptible they are. Initially, though, there was a bit of a hitch in the process. 
in that it was manual and it involved a human observer. So what was that process like? So setting up the experiment was one thing. It would take a a day to create the 2,400 leaf discs we needed um, for an experiment. And maybe it would be seven people sitting around a table uh, punching leaf discs and arraying them on trays. But the real challenge was in the manual observation of the phenotypes of how much powdery mildew was growing on each of the samples. So it involved um, clearing the leaf discs from the chlorophyll so that they appear white and then staining the fungus so it stood up off the background. You could clearly see this black stained fungus on a white background. And then a human could sit at a microscope and and count how many hyphae there, there were. But each sample took about five minutes to look at. And so if you have 2,400 samples, it takes quite a bit of working hours, laborious time at a microscope to read out the phenotypes of a biparental family. So how many samples could one person examine in a day? Oh, it would be good to examine uh, 30 samples in a day, something like that. We calculated that a typical experiment would take about one month uh, or more for a technician to record the data for that one experiment. And we got really outstanding data quality from it, but uh, it took a lot of time and was very low throughput. Right. And as we said, breeding is a numbers game. So if you want to up the numbers and discover new sources of resistance, that had to change. And so enter the robots. Yeah, once we figured out the methodology for doing this manually, we realized that with modern automation and neural network analyses, we could really uh, turn up the dial in throughput. Uh, by automatically collecting images for each of these samples and then feeding those images into a convolutional neural network to quantify how much powdery mildew there is on each leaf disk. So what were the convergent technologies that came together at this, this, this moment that allowed you to go from, say, 30 samples a day to thousands of samples a day? Yeah, the the convergent technologies were really the automation, the the moving from one sample to the other, uh, the optics uh, of being able to basically take a microscope image, and the sensor technology of being able to capture all that information in very high resolution. So with this one centimeter leaf disk, we basically... Each pixel represents one micrometer, uh, which is, you know, the size of a bacterium. It's very, very microscopic, you know, tiny stuff we're looking at. And then, of course, the artificial intelligence technologies are amazing. And we found, actually, that the uh, computer vision approaches that we're doing, these neural networks, they're more accurate than the human sitting at a microscope in quantifying Uh, powdery mildew and predicting uh, what genes might be underlying the resistance. So the device to do this is called the Blackbird, and it's it's got an interesting history. It's it's named after a Cold War spy plane. 
Yeah, well, it's very much like a surveillance plane. It's just on a completely different scale. We have this camera hovering up over top of this leaf disk sample with these tiny um, fungal threads that are growing. And it's basically a surveillance of what's happening with those hyphal threads. A beautiful thing that this imaging platform allows us to do is, whereas with technicians, we needed to kill the powdery mildew samples and just take a snapshot of what they're doing. With this imaging robot, we can do live imaging and watch how the fungus grows over time, uh, repeatedly coming back to the same samples and seeing how they've changed. And so the promise of this um, high throughput system was the discovery of, of new sources of resistance. Has it done that? Absolutely. So, as you said, it's a numbers game, right? So before we were able to, in a single year, conduct anywhere between six and eight experiments. Last year, we were able, with these imaging robots, to conduct over 30 experiments. And we identified 12 new resistance genes, uh, thanks to these this throughput. So just to give a little context, in all the previous work of the past 20 years, working on grape powdery mildew resistance around the world, uh, in one year we doubled the number of resistance genes that are known. You've taken an off-the-shelf, high-grade commercial camera, something that you, is accessible to a consumer, equipped it with an appropriate lens, and it's been combined with a th- the stage of a 3D printer for uh, for movement and, and precision movement. And then the images that are captured are run through a convolutional neural network for analysis. So each of these steps is something that we would not have had access to, uh, say, five to ten years ago. It's all a result of very recent developments. And those developments are continuing to push the forefronts of of what we can envision. You know, I'm very excited this year we're going to be adding on thermal imaging and see what uh, information we can gain about disease progress uh, in in relation to the thermal signature that the fungus and host release. You know, we'll be adding hyperspectral imaging so that we can look at the biochemistry of the interaction uh, during disease progression. Uh, there's just so many things, uh, different way, things that we can pursue. So currently we're just, we're capturing color images of, at a very high resolution that allow us to see something formerly only observable at very high magnification under a microscope. It's, it's being captured by a consumer camera. Right. These are very high resolution, 50 megapixel uh, consumer cameras, and those sensors are only going to continue to improve. So the resolution of what we might see uh, two, four or five years ago or from now um, is only going to get better. So not only are we thinking about how far we've come in the past couple years and how quickly we've gone from low throughput manual um, data collection and analysis to what's currently 
blowing our minds with the high throughput and how quickly we can go uh, from a hypothesis to a gene. Um, and the future uh, is really exciting. What's the next bottleneck? Well, now what we've been doing, of course, is just looking at one centimeter leaf discs in a highly controlled environment. The next exciting thing is taking the technology out to the vineyard and doing field work to look at natural disease incidents, early detection of pathogens, and quantification of those pathogens on leaves that may be different sizes, different textures, at different angles to incident light. Much more complicated problems exist for us in the vineyard. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at plantopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.